You are listening to the National University Podcast. Hello, I'm Kimberly King. Welcome to the National University Podcast, where we offer a holistic approach to student support, well-being, and success, the whole human education. We put passion into practice by offering accessible, achievable, higher education to lifelong learners. Today we're discussing how to promote mental health in the community and according to the National Library of Medicine, there are seven topic areas that have been identified. Collective collaborative care, early psychosis, school-based interventions, homelessness, criminal justice, global mental health, and mental health promotion and prevention. We discuss adapting the social ecological models for health promotion and provide the framework for understanding the actions of community interventions. On today's episode, we're discussing how to promote mental health in the community. And joining us is National University's Program Director of the Social and Psychological Department, Dr. Henry Venter. Dr. Venter obtained his doctorate at the University of Johannesburg and has been a practicing psychologist for over 25 years and a professor at National University for over 18 years. And we welcome him to the podcast. Dr. Venter, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me today. Well, it's great to have you. And so why don't you fill our audience in a little bit on your mission and your work before we get to today's podcast? The um, Well, the most part of my work at National University uh, consisted of training mental health therapists. So I was for about 16 and a half years at National, part of the uh, program in the Department of Psychology, uh, preparing uh, the, the therapist uh, called Marriage and Family Therapist in California for licensure, which was, uh, of course, a, a very rewarding uh, endeavor. And um, I was uh, a part of the team that took that program online and it, it just exploded um, in, in enrollment because there's a great shortage uh, projected for the future in therapists. And so last year after COVID, I was uh, tapped to take over the position as director of the uh, Master's in Human Behavioral Psychology, which does not train therapists but uh, prepare people at a master's degree level to operate in organizations such as counties, schools, and departments, which is still a very rewarding uh, endeavor. That I can say that. And boy, I think right now it's such a relevant um, mental health is everywhere. And so that kind of is shocking to me that there's a shortage. Um, I think people graduating through college right now, that's such an an open opportunity. Absolutely. Um, so today we are talking about how to promote mental health in the community. And so, Doctor, what are, what are the key factors contributing to mental health challenges in today's communities and how can we address them effectively? Well, I think the first one is obvious to everybody is increased stress. I mean, since uh, COVID started, uh, it was like we went down an avalanche of stress, first with uh, illness and how to treat that and uh changing the way we work, the way we live. And and following uh, the, the pandemic, that has not changed. Everybody noticed that we then suddenly had a lot of other stressors, uh, financial, currently the, you know, the um, home crisis and how do people afford home crisis, even how to afford college. So it seems that the stress is just increasing uh, exponentially. 
and um, the and I think that is something that that exists on a macro level because that's not something that that families can uh, can, can control because it's like the world the countries at a large is having a hard time governing us and creating safety and security the world over. And this stress, of course, translates back to people uh, and how they view their world. I think since COVID, our illusion of a safe world that is operating wonderfully and 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 is uh, on uh, in control has been shattered, uh, and, and that has changed a lot of people. I remember when I, I had COVID twice, and the first time we had to isolate for 14 days, it really messed with your mental health because you suddenly hear about other people that in five days pass away tragically. And you think, well, what's going to happen? What's you know, what symptoms do I have? I think that has uh, create, uh, created uh, a huge change and left people vulnerable. And the continuing stress is, is uh, now working uh, with that. The other interesting factor that we have found, I just concluded a study on isolation, is we're experiencing a worldwide social isolation, especially among young people, 18 to 28 years old. Now, you would expect the opposite with uh, connected online and they're online all the time and on their devices. And you would expect that, no, that, that would be less. But uh, not only is that enormously high, in areas that you would expect that it, it's probably not relevant there, such as big, uh, large cities like Seoul, New York, and places like that. Incredibly high numbers of social social isolation. And uh, we expected the opposite. And um, I think just after I did a presentation last year, September, in Toronto, the Friday that I did the presentation, Thursday, the Friday, the, the, uh, the, the, the report was published here in America by the uh, Surgeon General, on isolation, and we realize, wow, we have a bigger problem than ever. So, socialization, isolation, is uh, something also just like the pandemic that we didn't expect to happen. That is that is playing. So, I think these two things: the increased stress and this this uh, um, increasing socialization isolation is is creating havoc in our mental health because it's things that young people thought I would go to the city. Uh, it's not going to happen, and suddenly they face with, "I have no friends, I have no con, I don't know where to go. I'm sitting on my own." So I think these two factors is is uh, responsible for the hike in mental health numbers. The other thing I have to mention, if we compare to 27 years ago, the mental health numbers we would have expected with the increase in care, the increase in medication. Uh, the increase in the availability, that mental health numbers would actually go down. Well, the opposite is happening. In the last 10 years, before COVID, this is not just COVID, before COVID, mental health numbers has uh, also spiked tremendously. The uh, uh, visits to ERs due to mental health crisis has risen tremendously. And uh, a lot of people now doing studies, how is this possible? What is happening? It just says that we'll have to do more for mental health than we anticipated or thought that we had to do. Wow. And it's so funny. It's not funny. It's it's true when you said when we had uh, originally, when we didn't really know what COVID was and we had to isolate for 14 days, how quickly we forget. But not only do we not know 
what was going to happen to us, but also that judgment like, oh, so-and-so has COVID and that judgment makes you feel really bad about yourself too. So there's a lot going in on that mental health, isn't there? That's right. That's right. So how can individuals and community leaders work together to reduce this stigma regarding and surrounding mental health issues? I think that it's important to, to lead by example. Uh, you mentioned during COVID, a lot of people started to struggle. And initially, you, you, know, you didn't talk about that, that you had a hard time. But the more people who had COVID and the more people who started to talk about that, uh, the more we become open with that. Yeah, I really had a hard time. It really messed with me. And it is important to open up that discussion uh, of having symptoms of uh, mental health issues. You know, when somebody comes along and they say, oh, my, my cholesterol numbers is high. I'm in statins. No problem. Oh, my blood pressure is high. Yeah, I'm in blood pressure. No problem. Nobody th- uh, blinks twice. If somebody says, yeah, you know, I'm, I've been prescribing anxiety, anxiolytic medication, it's like, oh, something wrong with them. You know, there, and we need to, to to pass that that it is to experience uh, mental health symptoms and to then receive medication for some time um, is nothing different sometimes from having high cholesterol, high blood pressure. Uh, it is a reaction of the your body of your system to what is happening. It doesn't mean you're going to be on that forever, and we need to 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 normalize that by by this more open discussion, encouraging conversations such as this. That uh, experiencing mental health symptoms uh, is actually very normal and much more normal than uh, we ever. Uh, anticipated or that some groups thought would be. But I think the the most important part is education. For instance, some of the clients that I work with, for them, it is still the low point in their life if they are told by a psychiatrist that they will have to take an antidepressant. And, and then they come to therapy and they will tell me, you know, uh, I really feel like a failure. Well, why? Well, because I have to start taking antidepressant or something for anxiety. Say, well, why would that be? And that proves to you that the that the mental image they have in their mind is that somebody that uses medication for mental health symptoms uh, translates to, I'm now a failure. And more education is necessary uh, from a young level uh, to change that, that it's very normal to experience symptoms and that, in fact, to be open about it and seek help early, just like any uh, physiological problem, um, is 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 what will help us. You know, how many times you go to the doctor and say, why didn't you come earlier with this physical problem? And a lot of education goes now into it for earlier checkups uh, and, and people do that. We need to do the same with mental health. Get the education out there, open this conversation that it is normal to have these symptoms and it's necessary to seek help and talk to somebody because this is not, it's like the newer cars on the market. You remember there was a time that every second person could work on their own cars in the backyard with the newer cars. You can't anymore. Mental health. Don't try to fix it by yourself. Why would you do that? Seek help. Talk to somebody. Isn't two better than one? Two minds can solve the problem. But one of our biggest problems is this isolation that when people isolate, they also take much longer to seek mental health intervention. By the time we see them, say, how long have you been struggling with this? Oh, probably three, six months, 12 months, longer even. And I think we need to break that mentality that you do not struggle on your own. Talk to someone. 
You know what? And I love your analogy with the cars and how they've changed and you can't do it on your own. That's a great analogy. And I also love something you said that it's not forever. It's It could be temporary as far as medication or just getting back to mental health and just your road, but don't do it on your own. I love your messaging there. Absolutely. They, they, this whole, a lot of people ask me, well, how long do I have to be on medication? I say, you know what? Maybe a year, maybe two years. But isn't that better to function better for this time? And then with uh, working with your prescribing physician, you can go off, but you can it can only improve. But uh, a lot of people uh, still have that perception. Once I am prescribed this mental health medication, I have to stay for it uh, on the forehead. Or they come into therapy. But how long is this going to take? A year, two years? And often we say to them, no, you know, if we work together for 12 sessions, it may be all that you need. It's like, really? Is that that we can do that? So, yeah, you know, it's not like you have something which can be changed. There is approaches that can help you tremendously. And then we can take a break. And over six months, you come back. People just don't know how therapy works. And they think, well, if I go to therapy, I'm going to stay here for 10 years. Because, you know, my aunt once went to therapy and she was there for the rest of her life. And so education can help us to overcome this barrier. I love that. And I think that is a narrative that is missing, that it's not forever necessarily, depending on the, the case. Um, of course. And so we've talked a little bit about that role that education plays, but how can we ensure that it reaches all members of the community? I think the important thing is we need to start in the schools. We start in elementary school to educate children about mental health issues because we find an alarming amount of young children uh, struggling with mental health issues, uh, self-harm uh, due to bullying. And we need to start educating children about what what uh, is the mental health, uh, what are the symptoms, and why you need to seek help. Um, because that's when people are the most vulnerable. Your young children, elementary and middle school, are the most impressionable uh, young people. And then, of course, high school is where people can have a, a little bit better understanding that is our groundwork. And then in colleges is also the place where uh, a lot more education can take place. Because if we can reach this group, they will carry that uh, with them into the community when they become adults. It's, it's harder to educate adults. You know that. You know, As we say, after 40, <laughs> you can't make changes anymore. A lot of people find it's very hard to make any changes. Although I have to say, um, we find people uh, recently, I, um, uh, an 87-year-old person was referred to me for therapy. And that's unheard of. That, that, and that is an online therapy. That is not even face-to-face. So there, there are changes, but we got to start young, but we can leave out the community um, and to, to educate them. And this is where uh, I think mental health providers need to uh, connect much more with uh, health organizations, and um, the that does a great work in uh, doing education on you know, physiological problems. But I need I, I sometimes look at that, and I'll go into the doctor's uh, uh, um, offices, and I look what's in there. And amazingly, I still have to find a doctor's office where there is a whole area about mental health education. There's all this thing and this problem and that problem. And have you done your checkup for this? None still there. It's like we, you know, we still expect people to find this stuff for ourselves. 
So I think from a public health perspective, this is this is an area, education for for mental health issues that is that has not reached the level that it could. Simply from my observation, when I drive around, I look at billboards. I don't see billboards on mm. mental health issues um, and and advertising that enough. And and that is you know worrisome to me because where is that education? How is it going to reach people? So I think we there is a lot that that um, you know states, counties, mental health, uh, uh, public health organizations should do and say we need to if we want the people to seek help, we'll need to educate them starting young, and then going through our communities and also reaching older people. I love that, and that is something else that we don't talk about a lot is the aging. You know of you can't teach an old dog new tricks, I suppose, is kind of what you were saying there. But another question I have is, are there specific cultural or societal aspects that impact mental health differently? And how can we foster inclusivity in mental health promotion efforts? Absolutely. Uh, you know, America is uh, a cultural mix of people coming from so many different areas. And each one bring with them their uh, their uh ideas about mental health. And for instance, some cultures are very confidential and do not talk outside of the family or approach things as the family will take care of that. Um, and now, but now they're living in this modern society, you know, this um, capitalistic, materialistic uh, society with a lot of pressure because, you know, capitalism is great. Materialism is great. The only downside, it takes a lot of money to make it. Money, making money means stress. And that, so even if you come from a different culture, you are living in this, in this, this melting pot. And we need more education to reach the different cultures, to understand the different cultures that, you know, you need sometimes to go outside of the family to seek help when something happens. You can't just hide that. But we do find that still a lot of families from different cultures. Uh, feel that breaking the silence is going out of the family, talking about your your, your private business is breaking a code, and um, and that is the, the, I do not think enough is being done to reach all of the different uh, cultural groups in America that uh, that is living this in this stress and experiencing the same symptoms that other other people, but struggling alone. And so we we need to, you know, from a therapist viewpoint, we need more therapists from different cultures to train them. Uh, for instance, in the program we we have at National University training um, marriage and family therapists, our our push for years was, you know, we need students from different cultures because they need to go back to their culture because it's so easy to work with your own culture. But it was amazing how underrepresented some cultural groups were in our training. That it's as if they not only have they not really discovered the value of mental health, but they had they missed one of the greatest careers, and that's becoming a therapist. It is a great career that actually you can do well financially very well. Uh, but there are some groups that we that that you know in California, I knew what the numbers were for these groups, and I would look at our student body and say, why are we not reaching these groups? Because we need people to train because uh, uh, the one of the groups that we worked with, uh, I was situated in Fresno, Central Valley of California for a long time. One of the unique groups we have there is the Hmong people that, that comes from Vietnam. 
And for years, we were trying to get students from the Hmong community because they're a very unique community that's very cultural. You know, and, and Fresno is one of the areas where the Hmongs from the whole, uh, all of the country meet at the Fresno Fairgrounds once a year for their festivals. And they have the most unique festivals. And at last, we broke through and we did get students enrolling in our program. And and uh, then they later on started counseling center uh, uh, for Hmong people, uh, which is very successful. We couldn't place enough students there. And so th- that is what we need to do because gradually – uh, they will be able to adapt mental health services uh, for their community to, to make it accessible, understandable, and, and reduce the fear. Because fear plays a big role. You know, if you go to the doctors to this day, you're kind of a little bit apprehensive right. because, you know, you sit in the waiting room and then they open a little door and they take you to the back. And yeah. you never know what's going to happen there. So the same with mental health. we got to understand that we need to break this unknown that people have uh, and that fear what's going to happen. Um, and so using, you know, people from the different cultures and getting the training can do a lot. And that's another great analogy. And I say doctors, dentists, <laughs> we all have that big fear, right? Uh, but this is true. We need to break those barriers. What about in times of crisis, such as the pandemic that we all just went through? How can communities come together to support one another's mental well-being? Well, I think one of the prior to the, to the pandemic, one of the big questions we had was, can we train people online? Uh, one of the questions we had, can we train therapists online, which I was advocating for. And there was still a question, can we really do therapy online? And uh, can we do a supervision online? The pandemic forced us to do it. And lo and behold, what was the outcome? We found out it works wonderfully. Um, and now you can do group therapy, you can do uh, individual therapy, you can train people online. Uh, I think that was one of the positives out of the pandemic is that it just, you know, forced the debate to to the practical rounds. So, well, now you can force to do it and you'll know it works or not. And it works. So virtual support groups uh, in any uh, crisis where we have to isolate has proved invaluable. Um, and and it, it also forced the rise of uh, different online uh, counseling uh, organizations and uh, a different app. I think worldwide we now have more than 20,000 mental health apps available, which does tremendous work. I mean, we have apps now and, and programs online where if you, if you enroll today, you have the chance to start seeing a therapist today. Well, if you, uh, you know, on ground prior to the pandemic, uh, you would go in and call your insurance. It could take you three months to six months to get an appointment with a therapist. I mean, by then, well, the crisis is of such a nature that you know, it, it was unthinkable that we could do that. Uh, so a lot has changed. So the virtual world has helped us tremendously and showed us tremendously that we can uh, continue our work virtually. Of course, the other main thing that it also helped out is with the expansion of helplines. I think previously we saw helplines always as, well, it's, a, you know, it's adjacent to everything. We can do it if we want. During the pandemic, we realized helplines are invaluable. And, and their role during the pandemic, I think, is they're unsung heroes because people could just call and talk to somebody. And I, and I saw that uh, tremendously. But also communities um, is very important in community care. And, you know, 
uh, when we traveled through the country during uh, during COVID, we also sold up in California and looked for another place to live. And so I was I, I traveled through many uh, states, like eight states, looked at different counties, and we could start comparing what you know what services here, like for instance, internet. Well, not every county is equal on that. I think some hasn't heard about um, fiber optic cable. What's that? Uh, but mental health-wise, some counties does ex- excellent work, and they prepare. They have mobile teams, and some counties is like, what's that? So it's very unequal, and and so I think there can be so much more work done to get counties, communities to prepare teams for when we have a crisis. Mental health teams that does checkups that create. Uh, you know, the other day I drove up to an intersection here and the most beautiful bus stopped next to me, the blood bank bus. bus. <laughs> they have a problem getting uh, people to, to donate blood. So what do they do? They bought a bus, they made it beautiful and they send it out to the girl. I said, what a novel idea. Yeah. I mean, I looked at it, it even had three uh, ACs on the roof. I said, well, they really keep that thing cool. But, you know, that's the kind of thing communities should have is their mental health mobile team to go out during crisis and we can ask how many communities, how many counties, how many communities does have that? It's something we haven't thought about until the pandemic hit us. And that's, that's- one of the things I can, I think we, we need to think much more practical. Um, you, you know, first responder teams, we need to have first responder teams, mental health first responder teams that can go out and check on people. Um, now we have great areas like here in my area, we were working in my house and, uh, one of the guys got sick. He got something in his throat and we, we called 911. I tell you within three minutes, we had the police here. We had the fire brigade here. We had a supervisor of some sort that is called out in a crisis. Uh, and the way the ambulance here, and wow. we, we have such great services already. What we need to add to that is a mental health team that can go out with them. Um, we have the infrastructure. We need to expand in many areas. Now, now again, some counties are excellent. They already do this stuff. Right. But I think we are such a vast country that that uh, we need to expand this uh, further. I totally agree. And I love that your correlation with the blood mobile along with the mental health mobile. And I know a lot of our, um, at least in California, our law enforcement agencies work with a team called PERT, which is that psychological um, expert team that would come along. But but that's a separate item. What you're saying is for community outreach. So I really like yes. that. So what initiatives have been proven are successful in destigmatizing mental health and encouraging help-seeking behaviors within communities? I think the main thing is it is the destigmatization, and that comes through the public awareness campaigns, but also in communities uh, where people tell their stories. What we have found was why does group therapy work so well? You know, you, you take addictions, for instance, people struggle individual, you put them in a group, and that person starts changing because peer support is uh, is tremendous. Sometimes when I work with somebody, they have a problem I've never lived with, and they know that. I don't have that lived-in experience with them. Um, but if they have somebody that has lived that life, a peer talking to them, uh, they, they pick up and listen. So I think sharing personal stories of recovery, resilience, can truly inspire. And I have to say we have much more than that now going on. Um, where people tell their stories. I think there's one online uh, mental health provider that does a great job with advertising. They use 
uh, uh, public figures, um, uh, songwriters, uh, artists to make ad- in, you know, advertisements for them that says, hey, I've been struggling with I saw some of that and I thought, this doesn't even look like an ad. This this is just showing this is person that everybody knows they have a fan base. Um, and so that is utilizing our modern world. So you get some of these, these what they call influencers uh, that yeah. struggle with mental health. You, can, you get them to tell the story and people are inspired and they listen to that. So I think we yeah, our campaigns need to change uh, um, on a larger scale where we can listen to people because nobody really wants to listen to me telling them, hey, you need to take care of your mental health. It's like, well, you're a trained psychologist. You don't know what problems are. You know, you don't live like a... So there, there is a barrier immediately, even though they don't know my story, but right. that's the initial. But but if one of their own people comes up and say, hey, I live among you, I'm like you, and you know what? For years I struggled and I didn't tell nobody that I was struggling. And, and, and I went to therapy. This is what happened to me. I think we need to embrace that model of, of sharing personal stories of recovery and resilience uh, in our communities on a larger scale uh, to, to help people to see there's people like me that struggle that went for therapy and not necessarily just listen to you know, so-called experts that tell them what to do. Because there's a there's a natural gap there. Yeah, and those stories really do um, sit with people. They remember those, especially as you said with those influencers. This is such great information. Thank you so much. We need to take a quick break, but we'll have more in just a moment. Don't go away. We will be right back. And now a national university tip on getting started. For me personally, I knew I wanted to pursue an education due to what I wanted to do in in life. But if I had to look back at somebody in my same position, I would tell them, for one, get rid of every reason why you can't go to school. Just deciding and then committing to it, the first place to start is, what do you enjoy? What do you care about? And if there's a degree that you you can translate that into, then let's go after that. If you're unsure, talk to somebody who's currently in school. If you're serving with somebody who's going to school, talk to them about it and what their experience is like. The thing is, I truly believe as far as the general education, it's a perfect time to develop an understanding of what you want to do. It helps you figure out what you want to do. There's always going to be room to adjust, to make changes. And so looking at anybody who was sitting in my position and they're thinking about going to school, I would tell them to go down to that college office. They can guide you and and help you figure out what it is or ways that you can make it happen. back to our interview with National University's Dr. Henry Venter. And we're discussing such an important topic, how to promote mental health in the community and some great ideas coming forward. How can technology and social media be harnessed to promote mental health rather than exacerbate issues like cyberbullying and digital overwhelm? Yeah, you know, there is a lot of uh, groups existing uh, online that focuses on um, attacking other people. Um, and we need to use the same technology to do the opposite and create more safe spaces. Um, because you know, I'm, I'm always so saddened when I read about uh, a, a young person, a teenager, for instance, they go home and harm themselves because they are being cyber bullied. We need more spaces where they can go to a group, an app, 
that they can access, that's a safe space that they can share about uh, where other young people are used to share the stories. I've been there. Um, and it always amazed me, why did they find the negative uh, groups, but they didn't find the positives? Is it because there doesn't exist more of the positive groups? Should we do more there? Uh, where they go, And that goes back to my point of education for young people. We also need to educate them about um, groups online that they can find that can support them, that can tell them, that can empower them. It's like you don't need to take this. You can speak out. Because remember, a lot of bullying exists in isolation. It only is power because the victim doesn't speak out because they're afraid. But we need to create more safe spaces. And that's where the the new technology and social media is is uh, is a great tool to use. And we need to learn more how to how to use it positively uh, and 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 create these spaces of peer support where people that struggle uh, can go to. Say, here's a group that I can go to and that tells me this is what I can do. You know, just a safe space for the moment until I'm ready to speak out. Because not everybody is always ready to speak out immediately about their problem. We know that. It takes a while to develop the courage and the confidence to speak out. Um, and, and if we can create a space where they can be anonymous, but they can uh, be helped to listen to, that is important. So I think social media is not just negative. It, there is a lot of positives. And I think, you know, the the um, I'm not sure if I mentioned before, but worldwide, there is a surge in developing mental health apps. <clears throat> and um, because we are seeing that this space is there. So I feel positive that we are beginning to do that. It's also apps that can help people track their mental health, uh, mindfulness techniques that they can use every day, relaxation that they can use every day. So I, I see a great uh, development, positive development in this area that companies have seen the value in creating apps for mental health and people buying into that. Now, the more people buy into that, uh, and it's really not always that expensive, the more that buy into that, the more people will create. Like the fitness industry. I mean, apps in the fitness industry is a multi-billion dollar business. We need to have more people that create these apps and more people using that uh, so that we can have more of this uh, technology help available for people struggling. That's a good point. And I know you just said maybe there aren't those stories out there. They really are. It's just that they don't have a place for them to be yes. featured. So I, I, yeah, we just need to balance that. Uh, are there any creative approaches or unconventional methods that have been effective in promoting mental health at the community level? Yeah, yeah there are. I, I've seen the other day uh, um, where they had uh, art therapy uh, yeah, focused on mental health um, for uh, children and and youth, um, and it was an outdoor activity in in Costa Mesa, and I think that's the kind of takes it out. It is it is in an art form. Uh, it shows that expression. Uh, it create it gets the community together, and and so I think that is that's the type of different approaches that we need to look at, because sometimes you need to look at all right. We've done something in a certain way. We didn't get the result we had that way they anticipated. It means it's not working. So we need to look at different ways um, and more, uh, you know, ways that can reach the younger population much more. We know, we, you know, I grew up in a world of brochures, no online, no computers. You guys, you know, 
some of your listeners in the older generation know brochure. We're done with brochure. We don't want brochures anymore. Right. Is you create new uh, uh, ways. So I think the technology is, is is opening the door for us to develop more creative uh, approaches in sharing uh, the you know the, the the knowledge about mental health. Um, and I see more of that coming along, and I hope there's more that comes along. But we need to look at all right, what worked in the past uh, didn't work that well. What can we do differently? How can we uh, advertise differently? And I think a lot of people are embracing uh, the the online world to do that. And especially now with AI, uh, I see some brilliantly created art forms about mental health uh, through that. And young people look at that because they're drawn to that. And and so I think there are signs of some very creative approaches uh, to uh, to do that. So true. I love that. Um, and yeah, just uh, we have to be creative. How can workplaces and schools become mental health supportive environments, and what are the benefits of such initiatives? You know, the the, uh, the workplaces is just a phenomenal area to start. And here I got to point out National University. Since I've been here for eighteen years, I think in the beginning we had nothing. There was no mental health available even for faculty in our. Um, in our uh, medical insurance. Then we went to three sessions. And I remember as therapists, we had this laugh and say, what can you do in three cere- uh, sessions? Well, you can say, you know, uh, hello, how are you and goodbye. Uh, so it's great. Three se- and, and then things have expanded. And now not only have our medical insurance expanded and we have ample sessions to use, but we have also made mental health services for free available to students. If we have a student that's struggling, we can simply connect them and same day we can get them in with a group that can start seeing them because they are already part of the organization. So the organization needs to take uh, ownership of that. And I could see that over the years happening at National University. And I think our mental health providing for faculty as well as for uh, for students um, is one of the highlights that we have. And it's because it must be easily accessible, easily available. Um, if I teach a class, I can tell students, if you click there on the uh, resources, you'll see there, that's where you can go. But we also have, like in my program, one of my full-time faculty is a mentor. I simply send a name through to her. She personally calls the student, find out what's happening. We see, note in your work, there's something. Can we connect you? So organizations can can do a lot to take ownership uh, for their people, not just for their uh, for um, the materialistic side, making money, earning more money, but also for the fact that you know you are using yourself to produce in this company, and we recognize that that you have issues, and this is your community. Because remember, some people have only their work. And their family. They're so busy, they have about nothing else. Wow. And therefore, I think companies can do, uh, should do more, can do more. And then I got to say, some companies do phenomenally well. Um, the I think one of the things that COVID also showed us that we didn't have before is flexibility of work and study. COVID forced us to become flexible. And it showed us you can. You can actually run a massive organization without being in offices. Um, and I think no, a lot of companies say that doesn't work that well. But it did show that we don't need to have everybody every day in and off. We can become flexible 
And sometimes that's the flexibility that somebody needs just to step away from an office where it and the driving. You know, LA, where um, I've worked for eight years, uh, a commute can take hours. Oh my gosh. What if we can, somebody has a mental health issue and say, you know, work from home for a week or two, you don't need to drive in, can do a lot for that person. So I think then also the education of supervisors, managers, uh, directors, to, to be aware of this and to educate the people, notice it. Like currently we are focusing on student persistence. We are looking for signs that they're struggling for early intervention, not just academically, but also if we notice something is wrong to start a discussion, what is happening? Is there something else happening that you need to tell us that we can help you? And time and time again, we find out, yes, they tell us. Oh, you know, there's three major crises that happen simultaneously. Um, and then, they, you know, now it's always amazing to me, why didn't they contact us first off? But that's the way it is. The company needs to set the tone that we were there to listen. We reach out to you. And so I'm impressed with National with our emails we're receiving. We have this week. We have mental health week. We have this. It's yes, you know, because people will always be slower to respond. students will be slower to respond. We can't say, well, they can call us. We need to always say we create the service, then we reach out. Um, And and that can do uh, a tremendous uh, amount of work. Uh, And some companies are doing excellent there. Not just I'm part of National, but I'm seeing that and I can track where we are. Uh, It's a good example of, of what can be done to reach out to students, to faculty, to say, Let's take responsibility for our people. Let's take the services to them. Let's make them aware. Um, and so that they can, you know, garnish that, that trust to open up. Because remember, it takes a lot of trust to open up about your personal life. Uh, because most of us grew up not talking about our family. I mean, I have yet to find a family where you, know, you, you, you trained as a child to say, oh, you can talk about all our problems, just go out. All of us grew grow up with this, a certain sense of privacy that goes with us. And so, and that carries in your adult life. So we need to understand it takes trust. It needs to, until people will talk out. And sometimes we need to breach that gap. They say to reach out and say, is something happening? Do you want to, you want to talk to us? And then they open up. Oh, great. This is great advice. And so true and relevant. So what challenges do rural or underserved communities face in accessing mental health resources and what strategies can help bridge this gap? Yeah, obviously logistics, because, uh, you know, it's as we see in the medical field, you don't find a a massive practice uh, for oncology uh, in a very small rural town. They go to where they can attract business. We see it here in the mountains where I live in Western North Carolina. In some of the towns, they have services, but not in the next. People need to travel. But they do a great work to say, okay, we have satellite offices. Um, so although this is the main office, you know, in this town, that there were satellite offices, you can see there. But if necessary, you come here. So they do a great work in the medical field. That's a model we need to look at at mental health to say, we can have satellite offices. Uh, we can have, back to my mobile team, my blood bank bus, we can have the bus going out. But telehealth has helped us a lot. Um, one thing I have to mention, years ago, insurances uh, in California, for instance, where I'm licensed, uh, did not allow online therapy. And that uh, COVID has broken this bubble. And insurances now allow uh, online mental health. Um, 
and it is expanding the delivery service to the uh, rural communities tremendous, tremendous, and and so the um, the uh, and so I've talked to two of these companies now that have told me the work they do, and it's tremendous because they can now get people uh, reach out to people that has that insurance in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and, and and connect him to a therapist within a day or two. So I think telehealth has has, 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 has broken the gap, but it also needed to change in policy. So uh, uh, the, the big insurance companies had to rethink what they're doing, and, and the pandemic forced them to rethink and to see that the evidence shows there's no difference in the quality, just like we are recording here. Uh, this could be a group therapy for us uh, or individual therapy. And unless it's not in a very acute case, there's yeah. nothing that stops us from meeting once a week. And it is a great news that that, that has happened. Because I think big insurances started to accept that we can do telehealth has, is doing a great, great work for the rural communities because that is one of the, and I think that's going to be a game changer in the next years now. I hope so. And that's good. I, I'd like to see where that is going in that direction. Yeah, and that only I can only speak for California. I don't know about the other fifty states and their insurance. I know this one group is working with ten other states currently to you to market their services also to those states. So I, I it seems to me that it is going to be eventually countrywide that insurances uh, is going to allow uh, the telehealth, uh, mental health services, and that is going to be tremendous for the rural communities. Good, good. And, and we've been talking about just how we communicate this. What, how can family and friends best support someone dealing with mental health challenges while maintaining their own well-being? And that, you know, I, I've been a caregiver. That comes uh, yes. your own mental health. But also when you have kids with special needs in your family, and sometimes people don't really know what mental health, you know, what fits under that umbrella. So That's how- right. And I think that the main thing that one, and again, we go back to education, uh, if you have a family member that's suddenly diagnosed with, um, you know, a severe mental health issue, let's use, for instance, bipolar uh, disorder, which is not an easy disorder to understand initially because, you know, it's it's not anxiety, it's not depression, but it has these, these spikes up and down. So you need a lot of education to understand it. The uh, Also understanding the, the uh, medication for bipolar is very important. And that not all medication works initially the same way. What is the therapeutic level of medication? Is that uh, you, know, you start at a lower dosage and then they go higher. So a lot of education and patience is, is needed. But over time, taking care of that person also takes a toll on the family. So right. they need to realize, but we cannot just give this care. We, in the same time, we need to care for ourselves. Yeah. So support starts with also making sure you have support. Uh, because it is kind of draining to deal with that issue and to be the person that that walks ahead to carry your family member. But you need to be sure that you are supported, but also educate yourself about what is the best approach, finding new ways, new solutions uh, for that loved one that's struggling. The main thing is uh, to to have that empathy to move away from judgment. And also to understand not every mental health diagnosis is a life sentence. Just like if I go back to my analogy of blood pressure, uh, high blood pressure, and and um, you know I know families that that people have been diagnosed with blood pressure around fifty years old, and some of them are now seventy eight years old and they're still living a great life. 
Incidentally, they're using blood pressure medication and cholesterol medication, but they are 78 and they don't look like they're giving up soon. Mm-hmm. So it's not a life. But when they initially diagnose and start using it, they think, oh, this is terrible. And we need to understand that that being diagnosed with a mental health disorder is, number one, not a life sentence. Yeah. Sometimes it is a, a disorder that can be treated and will go away. Sometimes, like bipolar, it, it's probably not something that's going to go away. It's going to take a lifetime of management. And so some of the more serious disorders uh, is kind of lifetime, although the person, and we, we, we're following the recovery model here, where within your own diagnosis, you can be helped, you can be supported to still live the best life you can. Yeah. So, it, 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 if, and so it's important that families that have a family member join with groups that can support them, educate them about uh, how to approach their family member. What is the best support for their family member? To have a positive outlook, to say, you know, you don't need to put them in a room and watch them the whole time and don't let them go out. You don't need that because... There, you can still uh, live a fulfilling life. At times, the mental health disorder is probably going to cause a little bit more impairment, at, some, at times less. But it's not always, uh, you know, a complete breakdown. And people need, uh, uh, need to have that education and have that practical assistance. But it comes with support. So I see it as, as the two-tier. First, the family need education and support so that they can provide education support to the family members struggling and then become the logistical connection because somebody needs to connect that person uh, to services. Because the one thing I should say about mental health that is different is when you struggle with depression, you all know that, you know, you know, you have low energy, you feel hopeless, worthless, and helpless. And so even getting online and, 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 and finding, signing up, for a company. And, oh, you need your credit card. I, I don't know where my credit card is. My credit card is, oh, I think it's outdated. I, you know, it becomes overwhelming and somebody needs to do it for you and say, I've signed you up. Here you are. All you need to do is you're going to be there at that time in that room. And we set up. That's the kind of uh, help that some very practical support because with some of the now anxiety, just, you know, that if you have to even go online and look for help, it raises your anxiety. Because the one thing we have the internet is good, but there is a plethora of information. You go online, it's like, who do I choose this now? You know, where there was nothing, there is now 20 organizations coming up. Somebody with anxiety disorder suddenly feel overwhelmed. That's where family support comes in. That logistical support is say, don't worry, we'll set it up. We'll get you there. We'll monitor with you what's happening if something comes up. Um, but it's not only the person struggling needs support, the family needs to find a way to support themselves, to educate themselves all the time. And then we still find the the most uh, effective care comes from the family around. Somebody that has a mental health disorder that has a caring family around them does exponentially better than somebody that's isolated. Now we go back to what I said in the beginning, one of our biggest problems is that we now see that people move to the cities, young people, where they are now isolated. And I think this is where uh, it becomes a problem because they don't have the help to help them connect to services uh, because they're not with their family anymore. Uh, But family remains a major, major support system without which we sometimes cannot function. 
So, and that is, it's true. I love how you talked about just even the practical things that we don't think about um, when you step into uh, a caregiving situation or a mental health, that's something that's a new, you know, there's many ways to support. And I do like those practical steps because we don't talk about that. Yes. Uh, In your opinion, doctor, what is the most critical step that individuals can take to contribute to a mentally healthy community? I think there's there's three things that's important. I go back to the first one. We need to educate ourselves a little bit about mental health issues. So if I have a neighbor that I can that I and I and I notice my neighbor is isolating, and then I connect with my neighbor and talk to them, that I notice my neighbor is not doing well. And this is not just a cold. This is not the flu or the pandemic. Uh, like the other day, my neighbor was seventy nine years old, sick, and we all said, you know, do you have COVID? But, you know, because we all know COVID science now. But right. we also need to be aware, is, is there something, is this a mental health issue? So that we can be aware, you know, this is not normal. This person was also always vibrant, always out, and suddenly they are shut down. They're not coming out. So if, if, if the population as such is more educated about what is mental health symptoms, one of the first things we need to look at is a change in behavior, isolation, not c- contacting people. Um, important. Then secondly, reaching out with small acts of kindness and care. Mm. Um, you know, just not just noticing that, but acting, interacting with that people will help us uh, to more see if there's something wrong and, and you know, find out if family members know about them. Do they know this person is struggling? But we live in a world where we're very busy. People, you know, because that comes with the capitalist materialistic world that we're in. We need to produce. Some people are very busy, but small acts of kindness and care, focusing on our neighbors around us, can help tremendously. And notice these 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 uh, these signs, and then breaking the silence around the mental health issue. It's like don't struggle alone. Um, we, yeah, you know, it is, and I don't know where did we lose that because years and years ago, helping each other was a mainstay of the American society. Right. Somewhere right. along the line. Uh, after World War II, I think there was a tremendous change that uh, that came with urbanization and living in our uh, yeah, urban communities with isolated. And I think it's it's also with the design of houses. You, you have your garage door opening, you drive within your house and it closed, nobody sees you. Right. Now, previously, you had no fences, you parked, you could, hey, you, you wave, wave to your neighbors. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of, of even urban design it started to contribute to isolation that yeah. that we and I've lived in these neighborhoods for years and years, um, and and now where I live now, you know, on the mountain, the people around me, you know, my neighbors here, there, we see each other, we in constant contact because we don't have these these prescribed ideas, and so we are much more aware of each other. So mm-hmm. I think breaking that silence, but be aware of of the people around me. That if we can realize, I I'm not just there to take care of myself. But I'm also there to watch out for my neighbor, uh, to break. You know, and I know it's the opposite of the materialistic world. But if we can go back to some of that values and say that I'm there to look out for my neighbor and I can see something is wrong and just start a conversation, we might find out, yeah, I lost a loved one. And you realize this person is in grief. Mm-hmm. Therapy can help tremendously with grief. I've helped people that were stuck in grief for six years, four years, that didn't know what to do about it. They were isolated. They were shut down simply because they didn't know what to do with grief and nobody could reach them. Now, I got to say, those people were brought to me by other people. 
that's at, at one point realized we need to do something. And, you know, it didn't take a long time to help them. Those were some of the shortest thing times that I worked with people because you were able, because they they struggled with one issue that if you could help them, they, they so again, it goes back to what I say, mental health issue doesn't need to be a life sentence. Sometimes working with a professional solves a big problem that you try to struggle with alone. So we need to break that silence and 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 realize, you know what, I can be helped. And I think that is the most important thing. Well, thank you for sharing all of your knowledge. It's just really spot on and you're so relevant and you've just given us all some things to think about. So uh, thank you for your time today. And you can get more information um, about um, what we just talked about with mental health in the communities by visiting National University's website at nu.edu. And thank you, doctor, so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to the National University Podcast. For updates on future or past guests, visit us at nu.edu. You can also follow us on social media. Thanks for listening.